Turn with me this evening to Matthew's Gospel. Let's look at Matthew chapter 8 and 9 this evening. Over the years, I've preached several sermons from Matthew and even done them in chunks of, of chapters and some from just isolated sections of, of Matthew. We've never done a start-to-finish Matthew sermon series, but uh, the number of chapters we've looked at are starting to stack up. So who knows, maybe one of these days we'll say we did all of Matthew, even if we didn't do it uh, from A to Z. But tonight we'll look at Matthew uh, chapter 8. We finished the Sermon on the Mount a few uh, weeks or months ago, and I wanted to look at few more chapters in this gospel. We'll, just, we'll see how far we go here in this year. But Matthew chapter 8, and I'll read verses 1 through 13. So let us hear God's word. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, Shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Amen for God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray as we always do before we come to your word, asking you to open our eyes and teach us. Because we acknowledge without you, we can do nothing. But with you, all things are possible. And you can open our eyes and show us great things in your law. So I pray tonight you would be our teacher, that Christ would be exalted, and that you would give us guidance on what we ought to believe and how we can live before you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Matthew presents Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And Matthew is like Mark. He strives to answer two basic questions about Jesus. One, who is Jesus? And two, how should we respond to him? We went through Mark's gospel over a year ago and really just came back over and over again to those two questions. Well, Matthew asks the same questions. His answers are more Jewish in scope. He probably has a more Jewish audience in mind as he writes this gospel. And because of that, Matthew emphasizes how Jesus fulfills 
the Old Testament, how he fulfills Israel's hopes, while at the same time explaining why he was rejected by that nation and how the mission to the Gentiles, ironically, fulfills Old Testament expectations. And that sketch of Matthew's story is not that different from what was offered this morning concerning the book of Romans. God has been faithful and he's going to the Gentiles, but ironically, that is actually exactly what God promised to do all along. And in order to prove that point, Matthew organizes his gospel into several blocks. That The outline, you'll see chunks of teaching and activity in Matthew's gospel. And they're put together that way to make this point, to prove that Jesus is indeed fulfilling the Old Testament. And he's fulfilling these different Old Testament themes. In fact, let me just summarize the blocks that have come previously to this section. Again, these are some of the sections we've looked at in uh, my ministry here. So in the first two chapters, we see that Jesus is the promised Messiah who fulfills Old Testament prophecy. Six stories open Matthew's gospel, all centered around Jesus's birth and early life, the kinds of stories we tell at Christmas. Matthew is concerned especially to tie each of them to the fulfillment of a specific Old Testament text or theme, Jesus fulfills Israel's scriptures. In chapters 3 and 4, we see that Jesus is the perfect Israel. And he fulfills all righteousness. So when Jesus appears as an adult in Matthew's gospel, he is first baptized. Why? To show that he will identify himself with sinners. That he will stand in Israel's shoes. He will be the righteous Israel Israel could never be. And as soon as he is baptized, he is driven into the wilderness where he withstands Satan's temptations. He obeys, whereas how did Israel always act in the wilderness? They sinned. They were faithless. Well, Jesus obeys perfectly as none of us can. And then in chapters 5 through 7, the section we just finished looking at, we see Jesus as the new Moses who fulfills the Old Testament law. Jesus both completes our understanding of God's law. He says, all right, here's where Torah, here's where instruction was always pointing. Here's the righteousness that God both demands and gives. And then he even goes and obeys the law in our place. And tonight I want to begin looking at the next section of Matthew chapters 8 and 9. It won't take as many Sunday nights, two, maybe three. And we'll see in these two chapters how Matthew continues to develop that theme of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. And here's the angle these two chapters take. We got a hint at it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Look back, probably there on your page, at verses 28 to 29 of chapter 7. We read there, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as he teaches, his authority comes to the forefront. And Matthew then builds on that as he comes into chapters 8 and 9. Jesus demonstrates Jesus' authority by focusing on his actions. Both in his words, Sermon on the Mount, and now in his Actions, 
we see Jesus's authority. And Matthew had already laid the groundwork for this in chapter 4, verse 23, right before the Sermon on the Mount. We read, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Teaching, proclaiming, healing. And likewise, at the end of chapter 9, at the end of this section, the double theme is reiterated. Jesus, uh, This is chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Word and deed. And these two chapters demonstrate Jesus' authority in action. And one last thing to say before we jump into the text itself. They don't demonstrate Jesus' authority in a generic way. Alright, Jesus is in charge. Nothing wrong with that theme. But they are even more specific than that. These actions demonstrate Jesus' authority as God incarnate. Jesus does and says things here that only God can and should do. Half of the miracles recorded in Matthew occur in these chapters. These these, are where they're concentrated in Matthew's gospel. And as we'll see, coupled to some of those actions are bits of teaching. So as the actions and teaching go together, we get a picture of Jesus as Israel's God. Israel's God returning to his people as he promised to do and calling them to respond to him. So chapters 8 and 9 show us Jesus is Israel's God who exercises divine authority. And let's overview the stories to see how Matthew makes his point. Now here's one way we could do it. We could just go through the stories one by one. We could take, you know, look at your Bible. You have the headings there of the different paragraphs. And we could just go one by one and say, look at Jesus' authority. And the overall idea would be clear. Uh, we would be left with this overwhelming sense of Jesus' authority. But as I sketched out the stories this week, and as I looked at them, it looks like some of these stories get clumped together. And they show a certain kind of authority. But then Jesus builds on what he does. And as he demonstrates his authority in one way, he then bears witness to his authority in a greater way. So, for example, when he heals the paralytic, we know that's authority over sickness. But what does Jesus do in that story also? He declares that that man's sins are forgiven. So his authority to heal bears witness to his authority to forgive. And so what I want to do is take the stories in clumps. Look at, okay, here's where Jesus demonstrates his authority in one way. And then let's look at how it bears witness to Jesus uh, demonstrating his authority in another way. The only tricky thing is they don't go in a perfect order. They don't stack from start to finish. We're going to bounce around a little bit like a ping pong ball, but I think it would be good to clump some of those stories and look at these different levels of authority in order to take away the main point that Matthew gives us. So let's look at two spheres of authority this evening. First, Jesus' authority over ill health. In other words, all the healing stories that chapters 8 and 9 give us. And let's just run through these highlighting the main ideas. In verses 1 through 4, chapter 8, one of the stories we read tonight, Jesus heals a man 
with leprosy. And let's think of leprosy and its significance. This is an isolating, life-altering, ritually defiling sickness. You, you had to go live in a separate colony and you couldn't be a part of the worship until you had healed and been declared clean by the priest. It's the kind of disease that doesn't typically disappear overnight. So if you go and read Leviticus 13, 14, it lays out the whole process whereby priests can examine uh, lepers and other skin diseases and declare whether or not they've been healed. Well, this man comes to Jesus and he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am. And when Jesus touches him, he is instantly cleansed. So there's authority just right off the bat that this person can touch a leper and instead of Jesus contracting defilement, the leper contracts cleanness and his skin disease goes away. But then at the end of the story, Jesus says, now don't tell anyone, but go to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded. And on one level, that may sound like Jesus is simply going along with the law. And again, nothing wrong with that. Jesus obeyed. The law, But I don't think it's merely, hey, the law says this, go do it. Rather, I think here's the angle. Who tells lepers what to do once they're cleansed? The law does. Who tells this leper what to do once he's cleansed? Jesus does. And so it's his way of saying, I am in charge. I am the authority. And then in this instance, there's no difference of content. What the law says is what Jesus says, but it's not merely, hey, don't forget what that commandment was. It's Jesus in the place of authority saying, I've healed you. Now go and do this. So authority on display. So even there, authority over illness, bearing witness to a greater level of authority. In the next story, verses 5 through 13, Jesus heals the centurion's servant, this Roman centurion that comes to Jesus and informs him, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus asks the question, shall I come and heal him? Now, probably some degree of a rhetorical question, maybe, maybe trying to elicit from this man his confession of faith, or maybe a statement intended for others to hear so they can say, oh, Jesus is saying, I might go to this Gentile's home. And risk ritual defilement. I mean, he already risked it when he touched the leper. Now he's going to go a step further and go into a Gentile's house. But the centurion actually doesn't need Jesus to do that. And in fact, the centurion makes the comparison between himself and Jesus, highlighting the fact that both have authority. And so understanding what authority can do. And by the way, notice direct references now to authority, which helps reinforce the theme of these chapters. This man recognizes I have authority over others. And so you have authority over sickness. Now, now what is implied in that statement? The implication is Jesus must be more than any man. He must be the creator. He must be God. That he could say a word from a distance and heal another person. And that is why Jesus is just amazed at this man's faith. Wow, you, you connect the dots about me and believe them when others who have been prepared for this for a long time do not. And so because of his faith, which is in the right object, he receives what he 
ask for. Now, in verses 11 through 12, Jesus makes this statement about this end time speech. So this is one of those stories that bears witness to a higher level of authority. So we're just going to park those verses for now and come back to them next week. Let's keep looking at the healing authority. In verses 14 through 17, Jesus heals many people. Specifically, we read that he heals Peter's mother-in-law. She has a fever, and Jesus is able to dismiss that fever by healing her. Then we read in verse 16, word must spread, that many demon-possessed and sick people come to Jesus, and he heals them. And then in verse 17, we have another statement about what Jesus does and how it fulfills the Old Testament. And again, this is another instance where he's healed, but now this Old Testament citation will bear witness to a higher level of authority. We'll come back to that verse before we conclude this evening. Skip ahead to chapter 9. In verses 1 through 8, we have the well-known story that I've already referred to of Jesus healing the paralyzed man. Uh, it's probably the same story as Mark 2, where the friends bring a paralyzed man to Jesus lying on a mat and have to lower him through the roof. Matthew doesn't include all those details, but the same idea uh, seems to be present. They bring the paralyzed man to Jesus, and Jesus heals him. But not only does Jesus heal him, in fact, he doesn't start by healing him. The first thing he does is declare that his sins are forgiven. And again, he bears witness to a greater degree of authority. That's another one we'll look at in the next section. Last story of healing is in verses 27 through 31 of this chapter, where Jesus heals to blind. Now we could include here also verses 20 through 22. There is a story of healing there, but it is connected with the story of Jesus raising a young girl from the dead. It's, it's what you call a sandwich story, where the story begins and then goes in a different direction and then comes back to the first story. And so Jesus uh, healing this woman is sandwiched between the story of Jesus raising a girl from the dead. And so I actually would rather put uh, our discussion of that healing uh, with that other story. By the way, Rick Hollifield told me I'm not allowed to mention sandwich stories and sermons because they make him hungry, but I did it anyway. It really helps get the picture of how uh, that story works. So because of that structure, we'll put that healing story with him raising someone from the dead. Those then, so far, th these are the healing stories in these two chapters. And we could ask ourselves these questions. All right, well, what's the takeaway here? Well, we'll build on the stories in just a moment. Uh, in some ways, these demonstrations are a means to an end. He heals so that he may show even greater authority. But they also, in and of themselves, say something powerful about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Those gospel questions. Listen to Isaiah 35 verses 4 through 6. The prophet says, Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. According to Isaiah, 
when God comes and saves his people, this is what he will do. And so as you look at what Jesus is doing, you should reason in the opposite direction. If he is doing these things, then this is God coming to save his people. The day of God's visit to Israel has finally come. He is in their midst. And we see it in his authority over illness. Let's come then tonight to the other area of authority I want to look at. Jesus' authority over sin. Now what we'll do here is look at two stories. There are two stories that go together that demonstrate Jesus' authority over sin. And in our case tonight, both of these have actually already been referred to. But as I said, the healing bore witness to something greater. So in the healing of the paralyzed man, in the healings after Peter's mother-in-law, you will have both direct and indirect references to Jesus' authority over sin. Let's start with the healing of the paralyzed man in chapter 9. Because this meaning is on the surface and we've looked at this one before. Jesus heals this man in order to demonstrate his authority to forgive sins. So they bring the paralyzed man to Jesus. And the, obviously what they want to do is have Jesus heal him. But Jesus' first statement is, I say to you, your sins are forgiven. And this immediately causes a negative reaction among the people. How, how can you say that? That's blasphemy. Well, Jesus then says, well, anyone could say your sins are forgiven. Sure. But only God can give life to a paralyzed body. So how about I give life to his body, and then you know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. And so at that point, Jesus raises this man up to good health. If only God can heal the body, and if only God can forgive sins, well then Jesus is God who will do life. So he gives physical life in order to raise this man up and demonstrate his authority to forgive sins. You see, the giving of physical life is not Jesus' only mission. Don't want to downplay it or, or dismiss it in any way, but it's incomplete if we stop there. Rather, Jesus' forgiveness, excuse me, Jesus' healing bears witness to his authority to fulfill his full mission, which is the giving of eternal life through the forgiveness of sins. You see, the new creation is coming. That's what God promised through Isaiah. And God will bring it about through Jesus and through the new creation, both body and soul will be forgiven. And so therefore, Jesus both heals and forgives. Now, one uh, study Bible makes an interesting observation. Simply declaring a person's sins forgiven would not have meant one was blaspheming. What do they mean? Well, priests did it regularly. In other words, when you brought your sacrifice, the priest could say, in accordance with God's law, you've done what God requires, therefore your sins are forgiven. It's like the assurance of pardon we give in our worship. But the study Bible goes on and makes this point. But making such a declaration while bypassing the temple authorities and the biblical requirements for animal sacrifices was something only God could do. And perhaps that's what his objectors were picking up on. I mean, who are you to go around the temple and the sacrifices and declare forgiveness? Well, only one who is himself, the new temple and the final 
sacrifice. So one kind of authority, healing, bears witness to a much greater level of authority, forgiveness and the salvation of souls. Let's look then at the other story I referred to. Go back to chapter 8, where we saw Jesus healing many. And let's look at that final verse there, verse 17, that gets attached to this healing story. So in verses 14 through 16, again, you have physical healings. I mean, there is a spiritual element. You have some demon-possessed people also uh, being healed. But it looks like most of these stories are focused on actions in which Jesus restores someone's body. And at the end of that story, Matthew identifies these healings as a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 4. Look at verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. Now, if you're reading through Matthew's gospel and maybe you're trying to, to follow the big themes and, and the big brushstrokes, you might not stumble at all here. I mean, after all, if you've been reading chapters 1 and 2, you see this kind of a formula all the time. This happened, and it was in order to fulfill this text. This happened, and it was in order to fulfill this from the Old Testament. So on one level, this looks like any other Old Testament fulfillment text. I mean, just stories being told which fulfill Scripture. But if you're familiar with Isaiah 53, this citation may raise a question. Why does Matthew use a verse from Isaiah's suffering servant? A passage that overwhelmingly addresses the atonement, the forgiveness of sins. How does that story justify a healing ministry? Should we think of physical healing as something that the atonement provides, and maybe even something that can be named and claimed? I think some have maybe tried to take it in that direction. Well, not certainly to that extreme. But should we think of physical healing as something the atonement provides? Well, I would say yes and no. Let me tell you what I mean. I don't think of physical healing as something that God automatically bestows on the basis of atonement like forgiveness. So when I pray for the forgiveness of sins, I have confidence that God gives it. He's promised on the basis of my finished work, if you confess your sins, you will have it. The, the verses we looked at this morning from 1 John. When I pray for physical healing, on the other hand, either for myself or for others, I do believe that God is merciful. And I do believe that God cares. And I do believe that God is pleased to raise people up and restore their life. And he does that. But what else does God sometimes do? Sometimes his providence decrees a thorn in the flesh. Ongoing affliction ongoing suffering that teaches a person the sufficiency of God's grace. So rather than delivering them from a trial, God teaches them the sufficiency of his grace. Now, when you pray for forgiveness, does God say, well, yeah, maybe or maybe not? No, he gives forgiveness, whereas healing uh, is not so cut and dry. So no, there's a sense in which the atonement doesn't guarantee I'm going to ask for healing and it's just going to be dispensed automatically like forgiveness. However, as we said just a moment ago in looking at the paralyzed man, the end game of God's rescue mission is a new creation. And that includes body and soul. 
So when God returns, he will raise the righteous dead. He will reunite their glorified body with their glorified soul, and they will be one glorified person in the new heavens and the new earth. And on what basis does God give that glorified body and that new heavens and new earth? On the basis of his death and his resurrection. It is in Jesus' atoning death that he secures the right to restore our bodies in future resurrection. So he comes now and he bears witness to that authority in his earthly ministry by healing and delivering people from sickness. Demonstrating that power shows if you're connected to me, in the end, this is where it's all going. The healing then bears witness to the forgiveness of sins, which is the main goal he accomplishes in his death on the cross. But when he comes again, he will finish that full work of restoring his creation. So when you zoom in, you see the different parts. When you zoom out, eventually you see it's one work of new creation founded in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus' Jesus's ministry. And this is where he demonstrates his authority. So authority over illness and authority over sin. He's come to declare those things and to accomplish them. And that is exactly what he has done. So next time when we return to this passage, we'll pick up with Jesus' authority over who enters the kingdom. And we'll look at several of the statements he makes about who's in the kingdom, including the one we began to look at tonight. Who's going to sit down at that end time feast? For tonight, before we close, just two uh, simple thoughts. Again, who is Jesus? He's the divine Son of God. He's God himself, manifest in the flesh. How then should we respond to him with worship, with adoration, with loyalty, with trust? Going to him for our cleansing, going to him for the forgiveness of sins, going to him for all of our needs, trusting him for eternal life, and for present grace. So let's give thanks to God and close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you again for Jesus Christ, his authority, as we'll sing in just a minute, his victory. Truly we see the victory of God in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that he is the king who has come to save his enemies and to change our hearts and that his reign so bad news if we don't submit to him is certainly good news uh, when our hearts are subdued to you. So do that for us, Lord. Meet our needs where there may be ongoing suffering or trials, sickness or physical needs. Please meet them. Be merciful. And Father, may we find our greatest needs, the forgiveness of sins and living for you and present grace and looking forward to future grace. May we find that in you as we sojourn day by day. Grant that grace to the people of God here and be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.